I knew my whole life that I was adopted and always wanted to find my birth mother. I was a mother who had her child adopted out in the 1970s, 1973. The emphasis in taking the consent was that the mother had a clear understanding of the document that she was signing. And I used to look in the mirror as a little girl and um, picture who I looked like. It was never really my wish that that was to be the outcome of my pregnancy, but it was made very clear to me in the beginning by basically my father. My she mother had was to sign really the Form 9, and on the Form 9 it would say, on the adoption of my child, I have no right to see or get in touch with the child. I am no longer a parent in this respect. As we all know, the history of adoption and what happened to mothers, here I am without my son. Adoption, the legal refashioning of a child's identity, is an extraordinary 20th century phenomenon. In its heyday, it wasn't just supported by an infrastructure, a bureaucracy and a legal framework. It was believed in. My wife and I had incompatible RH factors in our blood and so we just immediately thought in terms of adopting. Next door to the nurse's home was a home for unwed mothers. We probably thought that was okay. We probably thought that was the right thing to do. That was the thinking in those days. Hundreds of thousands of children all over the world, never mind in Australia, grew up either not knowing that they had been adopted or finding out accidentally that they were adopted. I mean, I'm, I'm 80, but when I was working in adoption services, I asked my mother, and my mother was an extremely kind and valent sort of woman, I asked her what would have happened had I become pregnant. And she thought for a while and said regretfully, I think you would have had to go. Attitudes from the past are often more difficult to fathom than actions. But of course it's attitudes that underpin what people do. And adoption, once it was established, seemed unstoppable. There were so many reasons at the time for accepting it. And there were at the time so few opposing voices to be heard. Understanding the history of adoption has repercussions for the present and the future. Add to the adoption community now historians, treading carefully. Adoption is a deeply political issue on a whole range of fronts. Adoption has always been about ideal families, the idea of the ideal family. When you look at the history of adoption in Australia, you're really looking at a highly contested landscape and one that is characterised by a series of deep ambivalences and contradictions. I say well, this is a particular interest of mine, this area of adoption, and before people have a conversation with me, they usually want to know where I sit in relation to the topic of adoption. What side I'm on, people often ask me. Well, what side are you on? For months prior to the birth, I was being told by the social worker that my baby was going to be adopted. What they did is um, drugged me to the eyeballs, and I've only just recently managed to get a lot of documentation about myself. I was absolutely distressed and distraught when I read what drugs I'd been given, this absolute cocktail of barbiturates. 
After she was born, I went up to see her. And the midwife tried to bar me from the nursery by putting her arms out and not letting me through the door. I was um, made very thoughtful by the accounts that were coming out about these women who had suffered so dreadfully at the time of surrendering their babies. And there was a great deal of attention given to that. And at one stage I thought, yes, but it wasn't quite like that. It was happening in this other context that people don't now remember. There'd been terrible abuses of children at the turn of the century, children who were born to unmarried mothers. The adoption law had tried to protect children. So I felt, look, this should all be put in context. It wasn't quite like that. Retired social worker Audrey Marshall. Social workers have a bad press when it comes to adoption, at the blunt end of charges from both birth mothers and adoptive parents. But social workers were also instrumental in adoption reforms. For over 30 years, Audrey Marshall and Margaret MacDonald worked in adoption in New South Wales as caseworkers and managers in the state sector and for a church agency. I had joined the Catholic Adoption Agency as a part-time worker to do six applicant assessments. Our understanding was that we were taking part in a whole new era of professional adoption practice. You know, things were going to be much better. Because when I first started working in adoption, I had no idea of how long it had been going or, <laughs> you know, I, I, my assumption was it had been there forever, as it were. Adoption has a very ancient history. Some of the earliest rules and legislation governing adoption goes back to the ancient Romans, the annals of the Emperor Justinian. And ever since, human societies have had different means of finding ways of augmenting families, of securing the orderly transfer of possessions, land, money, titles. So it's not a simple matter of, oh, it's all about love and cherishing children. That's a part of it. But people wanted heirs. People wanted somebody to pass family traditions and family property onto. So the whole notion of adoption is quite complicated on, on that level. Cliff Picton. He worked as a social worker in Britain before setting up the social work programme at Monash University in the early 1970s. For him, adoption is like a prism with many faces. Love, law and morality. Charity for sure, but also shame and punishment. The punitive bit derives from societies where people who transgressed the social mores of the time were punished. In 18th and 19th century Britain, if you were poor and destitute, then you went to the workhouse and they made your life hell. If you had a child out of wedlock, the child was stamped with the label of bastard, and that was a deeply discrediting term. There is a great motive here to destroy your child. If you've managed to hide your pregnancy, for instance, if that child doesn't survive the birth, that solves your problem in a way. 
Professor Shirley Swain of the Australian Catholic University. She's the head of a major new research project into the history of adoption in Australia. In the 1990s, she co-authored a study on single mothers and their children, looking back to the 19th century and the options that existed then to a single woman having a baby. The choices were limited. One was to pay for the child's board, an enterprise known as baby farming. Another was to dispose of it altogether. There's not a great concern about bodies. Bodies are found on the rate of about one a week up until the 1880s. Bodies of babies. Bodies of babies, about one a week. And it was generally believed that that was just the tip of the iceberg, that there were many more being tossed down toilets and put in places where they'd never be found. And it's really only by the end of the century, with the concern about white Australia and a falling birth rate, all of those issues, that these children become valued. And that's when you start getting policies that will stop this killing. But adoption isn't included in these policies. In fact, adoption doesn't actually start with babies. The first legislation emerged in the United States in the 19th century. Adoption is a global phenomenon, and much of the thinking around it has been led by North America. Karen Bulcom, Associate Professor of History at McMaster University in Canada. What we would now recognise as an adoption practice would be enacted as a form of indenture, an indenture contract, or sometimes as a name change bill. The modern law of adoption is generally linked back to a piece of legislation in Massachusetts in 1851, which was the first piece of adoption legislation which made this specific reference to the best interests of the child as being the governing process and created this process where a judge could sever the previous legal and biological relationship and replace it with another, presumably enacted under the standard of the best interests of the child. It's taken me basically five, five decades to understand, integrate, find a sense of peace with adoption. But at least in Nimbo, you've got somewhere to be. My name is Thomas Graham and I'm a, an adoptee. Just this year I've set up the Australian Journal of Adoption and also run a support group in Canberra. I think the social system and legislators at the time thought, well, you know, if you're brought up in a family and you're given love and care and, and, and a house and protection, that would be good enough. But I think there is a gap. There is a hole. A married couple are willing to adopt an orphan girl between six and seven years of age, of sound body and mind. Must have been reared as a Protestant. The Argus, 23rd of May, 1876. Well, in the 19th century, what they do is they use the newspapers and they advertise children. I was fascinated to discover that in the Melbourne Argus in the 1870s, at the beginning of the decade, there are almost always these advertisements in the column-headed servants. So the child's coming into the family for what it can do for the family. But as the decade progresses, they move from servants to miscellaneous. And I think that's the point at which they're adopting a child to make a family, rather than to get cheap help. Young girl, 14, would Wanted like to, to meet kind by lady young couple. willing child to adopt her premium. as daughter. Good home. Ken Lawn Road, Parade. Argus office, Saturday the 11th of January, 1879. The pressure for adoption is not about infants. It's about older children. 
Most of those children are not in institutions in those times. They're what we call boarded out, what we'd call foster care. And some of those boarding out parents want to have custody of the child. They don't want it always to have another name and have someone inspecting them. They don't want the risk that the parents can come and reclaim. For the welfare authorities, what they see in adoption is that they're not going to have to keep paying because that was the essence of adoption, that you took a child without payment. This is a period more broadly where we're starting to move away from large-scale institutional care for children towards more foster home kinds of situations, but still a real hesitancy around adoption. And that hesitancy comes from at least two places. One is uh, eugenic concerns about the probable quality or lack of quality, it's a horrible thing to say, of the child who might be available for adoption. And it goes something like this. The idea is that uh, if a woman has become pregnant and had a child out of wedlock, it is probably or possibly, more like probably in that era, likely that she is what would be known then as feeble-minded and that the weakness of her mind is likely to have been passed on to that child. Therefore, the child is a questionable product, to use those uncomfortable terms. Also in that period, um, social workers, and, and we're talking about a period when social workers' profession is itself just emerging, they uh, prefer to keep the child of the unwed mother with the mother, uh, partly because of concerns about the survival of the child, because this is a period when bottle feeding is very uh, questionable. It was reputed that someone had said that they wanted a child likely to have perfect pitch. <laughs> Maybe that was not quite right. And people would turn down a baby with a very minor physical problem because they could expect a perfect baby. So I suppose we were meeting their order. (laughs) It's almost consumer talk, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it was. But to put the other side of that... There were such generous and courageous people who'd take on babies with real problems. I I remember we had twin boys and one of them had looked like minimal brain damage and we offered those babies to about three lots of people and finally a family who already had four children, one of whom was adopted, took the twins. But the, the other families would say they'd take the healthy one. When an order of adoption has been made, the adopted child shall, for all purposes civil and criminal, and as regards all legal and equitable liabilities, rights, privileges... Adoption was legalised in Australia in the 1920s. It's a state matter, a situation that's persisted to this day, so that the rights of adopted people depend on the state in which the order was made. I suspect the biggest thing that was going on was that England legislated to introduce legal adoption. And because adoption in law is a very drastic change to the status of a child, I think there was a hesitancy. Certainly people in the welfare field had been arguing for the introduction of adoption since, well, since the 1880s and get nowhere. And then suddenly in the 1920s, it's all over the place. Why did England do it then? Pretty much the aftermath of World War I where they had a lot of children to relocate. They had families who'd lost sons who wanted to have another son. So there's a big discourse in England around the war and its aftermath. The rise of legislated adoption in Australia in the 1920s was intended to address the problem of neglected, destitute and abandoned children. Denise Cuthbert, 
Associate Professor of Sociology at Monash University. The objective was to place impoverished children in the homes of decent working class and middle class people with the ultimate objective that these children would gain an education, often through an apprenticeship, to commence, I suppose, the process of upward social mobility, which is actually at the heart of a lot of thinking behind adoption and the transfer of children, to take children from regrettable circumstances and to place them in a circumstance where they may thrive. In Australia, the ex-nuptial birth rate fell after the First World War, gradually rising in the 1930s. It's then that several churches opened maternity homes for young unsupported women to have their babies. It was this that set adoption figures to rise. The main group of children that pass into adoption are the ones produced by the maternity homes, run by churches generally. There was a big suspicion about adoption, and it's the one about your genetic inheritance. And people were not lining up in their thousands to adopt lovely little babies of doubtful parentage. So what the babies' homes do is engage in what was called in the 1920s and 30s scientific nursing so that you could guarantee the product. And they then advertise the children at between 12 and 18 months and say, you know, they're keeping up to their milestones. They're starting to talk. They're walking. You can tell that they've got no nasty inherited trait. So come and take them now. And it's really not till the 1940s that you get what we now would imagine as the typical adoption where the baby goes in the first six weeks to its new family. The real rise comes at the end of World War II. has to do with eugenics taking an enormous hit, obviously, in the aftermath of Nazi Germany. But more importantly, the really strong pronatalism of that post-war period, where a lot of historians would argue that to be a citizen in the 1950s in North America is to be a citizen parent. That's part of your true belonging in the society. Several historians have written about that. So that's when you get that sort of enormous sort of push for people wanting children to adopt. My wife and I had incompatible RH factors in our blood, which in those days meant that Any child after the first, at any rate, was a great risk. We lost our second baby around 1957 or 8. And so we just immediately thought in terms of adopting, because that was the post-war generation when people more or less took it for granted that about four children was the start of a family sort of thing. What you find from the middle of the 1950s is the emergence of discourses promoting the benefits of adoption. If you look at, for example, women's magazines and in the popular press, so the very, very good work being done by adoptive parents, opening their hearts and opening their homes to otherwise unwanted, because these babies were always presented as unwanted. And I think over time, the idea of adoption really became quite naturalised. And indeed we did manage to adopt a child who came to us when he was I think four days old. Classic sort of social thing in those days. The mother had fallen pregnant without getting married and it was taken for granted that she must give the child up for adoption. 
Firstly, that first generation of adopted children have grown up. And that's a powerful argument against the doubts. And it's used. Oswald Bunnett, for instance, the great campaigner in Melbourne who established the Methodist Babies Home to rescue babies from the slums and give them to middle-class families, he publishes a book called Would, Would You Adopt a Child? And what it is is a scientific study of the first 100 babies that had been adopted from the Methodist Babies Home. He goes out and interviews the families. He does, runs tests on the children and he shows how they're normal, happy children and their parents are really delighted to have them and it's all a great solution. And he's a great publicist, so he gets that out there. So you've got that factor. The second factor, of course, is that the ex-nuptial birth rate starts to go up again quite dramatically, partly to do with wartime disruption, partly to do with changing social mores. More sex, you mean? Yeah, more sex, basically, more sex. He wanted to know where he was conceived. (laughs) They want to know everything. They want to know everything about you. You're their mother. He had worked out exactly from when he was born when he would have been conceived, and I, I could tell him where he would have been conceived. It was just those fundamental questions about how did I happen to come into the world? Who was the father? What were the circumstances? Well, I'm a child of war, and she had a very transient wartime, I wouldn't even say a relationship, I'll say an encounter with an American serviceman, and I was born as the result of that fling. He doesn't know I exist. I think it's hard to understand in the 21st century how very strong that social disapproval was of young women who had children out of wedlock. It was a scandal, it was a shame for the family, it was thought of to destroy the life of the young woman. So there were very heavy pressures on young women. Children who aren't in nuclear families are a disaster at that stage. There's no place for children outside the happy family. That moral universe, it's the dark side of the 1950s happy families. Lines like, I'm really pleased I got her married before she was pregnant. That was achievement, that was good parenting, to get your daughter married before she got pregnant. And of course a lot of brides getting married were pregnant. That didn't really matter, it was safely enclosed in a marriage. Certainly there's a disapproval of the sex. There's no doubt about that. But there's also a sense by the 50s that the horse has bolted on that one. It's as if there's a disapproval of the sex but an intolerance of the pregnancy. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the visible presence and once that's out there, you're in trouble. And my parents said that they just didn't want me there. They were very worried about what the neighbours would say and they were very worried about what the rest of the family would say. They said I had to go away. So I went to see the social worker at the women's hospital. I went back home and told my parents that I was going to Sydney and they said, couldn't I go to Tasmania, that Sydney wasn't really quite far enough away. My mother was 17 and I was very close to somebody when I was young who 
was sent away to give up the baby when they were 17. And at the time, even though I didn't know I was adopted, I was really angry that they had had to do that. You know, the family should have supported them, they should have kept them at home and brought up the baby, and that was so wrong. Suddenly I could see this 17 years old and knew she had no choice, that her parents or family, whatever, had made the choice for her, so she hadn't rejected me. She had done what she had been told to do. Dr Susan Gare from James Cook University in Queensland has conducted a series of research projects on adoption, looking at the roles variously of midwives and social workers. If young women were in a family where the child just couldn't be accepted, could have been for poverty reasons, could have been for religious reasons, condemnation in the community that the parents couldn't face, then the child couldn't be taken home. If it was the case that the baby may have been able to fit into the family and be explained as another child of the mother, in that sense the grandmother, if the family thought that they could do that, then they did. If these young women had attempted to keep their children, most of them would have been written off by their families because of the social stigma attached to unmarried parenthood and the fact that there were very few sources of money and accommodation and support to enable that decision to be given a chance to succeed. The likelihood of even greater trauma if they'd kept the child was certainly very, very strong indeed. In the period following the Second World War through to 1975, we really see the rise and heyday of adoption as a good outcome for all. A good outcome for the child concerned because it goes to a loving home, a good outcome for the childless couple, and a good outcome for the young mother because she can relinquish her baby and simply get on with the rest of her life. Single mothers at that time, the 1960s and early 70s, were really in a no-win situation. I think that they had been coerced to believe that the best thing to do was to place their baby for adoption. And I, I think they probably believed in that. They were being convinced by an argument that, that was appealing and emotional. I think after they made that decision, which of course not every single mother made, a lot of young women did take their babies home. But for, for women who decided that was right, once they gave birth to the baby and then went back into their community, I think they felt quite duped by that argument because they heard another competing argument, which was that a woman would never abandon her baby. On no grounds would a woman leave her child or give her child to someone else. So I think they realised that they'd been duped. My father was never very good with emotion. No one spoke about it. We were told to just go away and forget about everything as if nothing had ever happened. No one was interested in what happened to us. What woman's going to come out and say, I gave my baby away? You know, my mother used to say to me, oh, pull yourself together. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I used to do, just pull myself together. 
can't simplistically explain it and say, oh, well, it was just because there was stigma and there was lack of finances. It was, I believe, the culture that had become so systematic in hospitals of basically de-babying mothers. So they weren't unwanted babies, they were unwanted mothers. The lack of acceptance of unmarried mothers was balanced by an almost equal discomfort around married women without children. It's really interesting to look at the discussions of childlessness from the period because what you actually find is that the childless couple, in particular the childless woman, was really, she was spoken of sometimes in almost biblical terms, the, the notion of barrenness. In the absence of a clear sense of a role for women in the public sphere, where the private sphere really was the domain for femininity, without children of her own to care for, there was really very little for any of these women to do. My birth mother was 22 at the time I was conceived. My adoptive parents were infertile. They'd been married 10 years when they adopted me, and the adoption was really not initiated by them. My adoptive mother was really coerced into the adoption by well-meaning relatives who felt that through adoption her life would have a sense of purpose and direction. She really was swept along by other people. She often said to me that she was stunned herself that the adoption took place. It was a privately arranged adoption through people in their church, although they lived on other sides of Australia. My birth mother's family preferred that I not be in Perth, that I was taken to another state. Christine Cole, whose daughter was adopted in 1969, is investigating past adoption practice. During my research into the archives of the Crown Street Women's Hospital, which, by the way, was the largest maternity hospital in New South Wales, I came across a paper that actually had sterility clinic on top, what was a heading, underneath that was adoptions. And then if you read through the document, the doctors believe, and this is from 1956, that 95% of infertile women were so for psychological reasons. And they had a belief that if they were given a child for adoption, they would go on and have their own children. In, in many cases, they did. Single mothers were being used to get the better class of people, who were a better class because they were married, to go on and produce more children. Also important in this period is new ideas of social workers towards the unmarried mother herself. In North America in this period, you get a new understanding of unwed pregnancy, in specifically in white women, and it's very distinct by race, as being the result of a sort of psychological neuroses on the part of the young girl who's becoming pregnant. She's, in fact, it sounds sort of strange to say it now out of context, but it's almost an understanding that she's almost willed herself to become pregnant. So she's not pregnant because she had un unprotected sex out of marriage. She's pregnant because she has unresolved issues with her father or because she's improperly adjusted to her heterosexual womanhood. It's very deeply seated, and it has to do with a lot of um, currents in contemporary psychology and social work as well. It also has to do with the fact that you're starting to get, undeniably, a fairly significant number of the daughters of the white middle class who are pregnant, and you can't throw them on the dust heap. There has to be some way to sort of recoup them. 
And this model of the psychological unwed pregnancy and this neuroses implies you have a sort of a disease of the mind that can be cured. And a critical part of the cure is the separation of that mother from the child. And so she goes through this process of seclusion, some kind of treatment. The child is separated from her, and then she can re-enter that script of appropriate womanhood. Along with a discourse that says this is the best option for the child to be separated from that mother. And separation becomes part of the architecture of adoption. It divides into maternity homes and babies' homes so that the two are not in the same space anymore. In some of the older ones, they continued to be in the same space, but the regulations against having contact with your child were now enforced. It was this belief that if in any way the maternal instinct was aroused, that the whole show would be over. And so a lot of procedures were in place to stop that happening. Don't let her see it. Don't let her have any contact. Anne Chandley was an outspoken midwife in the 1970s and 80s, active in bringing reform to birth practices. Glad McLaughlin was a nurse, likewise committed to change. Their training, however, dates from an earlier time, a different era. When I was uh, training and being educated as a midwife, it was in the early 60s. In those days, the uh, midwives lived in at the hospital in a, in a what was called a nurse's home that was always part of the hospital in those days. And next door to the nurse's home was a home for unwed mothers. We only ever knew those girls by their first names. And it was only if they you were in conversation with them at work that they told you where they came from. And a lot of them came from country areas or whatever and um, they just didn't want anyone to know. It was all kept a dim, dark secret. And they were there under the condition that the baby was to be adopted out afterwards. Um, we probably thought that was okay. We probably thought that was the right thing to do. That was the, the thinking in those days that the baby should be adopted out because um, if they had no means of support, what else could they do, really? What about the deliveries when it came time for the babies to be born? Yeah, well, that was pretty sad um, because they would be, well, as student midwives, we did most of, of the uh, catching of the babies. Those babies were taken straight from the room as soon as they were born and uh, all that young mother ever knew was whether, what the sex of the baby was and they were never meant to see that baby. So it was taken away straight from them. But they used to manage to see that baby later on. How? Oh. In the middle of the night, sometime they'd uh, make it their business to sneak down to that nursery. And uh, if you were on duty there, you'd come into the nursery and you'd find one of them sitting up in the nursery in the dark, nursing their baby. And we, I don't know anyone that ever said a word to them. You know, we knew that wasn't what's supposed to happen, but we, uh, everyone, it, it just made us all incredibly sad, actually. Makes me feel sad now thinking about it. <laughs> yes. Now, in a number of hospitals around the country, unwed mothers were coded on admission as either AB or UB, adoption babe, or I think UB stood for unwed mother, babe for adoption. And as is emerging, quite a different protocol was put in place by midwives and hospital staff for the treatment of those women and their babies in the large maternity hospitals around the nation. And there were practices in the hospital in the birthing about leaving the minimum marks on the mother's body so that they wouldn't spoil her for her husband. They wouldn't do caesareans, for instance, unless it was absolutely necessary. 
because they didn't want to actually scar her because they hoped that she'd be able to fool her husband that she'd never had a child. So shame just stayed in there in this really big way. That is uh, me just after I gave birth to her. And I asked a friend to take a photo through the glass. She's six days old there. Someone actually came after her and said, you have to give me the camera. She just said, no, I won't. And then so I was taken down to the social work room and told, you're not allowed to have any memories. <laughs> what a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> I think a lot would depend on whoever was in charge of the ward. And I'm sure there were areas where there would have been discrimination or people treated differently. And giving everybody uh, the name of Mrs. when they came in, that was done mm. pretty universally, mm. wasn't it? Yes, that yes, that's right. I suppose that was done to avoid any discrimination mm. that might have come up, so maybe mm. that was done with the best of intentions anyway. Mm. Yeah. Any big public hospital, if you were doing your nursing training or your midwifery training, it was a bit like being in the army and the convent altogether <laughs> because you did as you were told and everything was fairly regimented. You didn't think any other way. And because we lived in the hospital, the hospital actually owned you. I'd like to read the poem that I wrote two days after my daughter's birth. To my child who lives without shame, my life will never be the same. How I loved you no one knows, for only I could feel you grow. We were one person, you and I. Together we laughed, together we cried. And even though you've gone away, you're in my heart each lonely day. A little miracle has entered the world. Katrina Lee, my baby girl. Part and parcel with the history of adoption is the rise of social work, of professionals for whom adoption can present a sunny side to the work. You are in a position where you are giving or helping to give something very precious and desired to people who are selected for their good qualities. That's very seductive. Social work is a young profession, and in most states and territories, social workers, professionally qualified social workers, did not get involved in adoption until the 1960s. It was possible for adoptions to be arranged by anyone at all, a clergyman, Doctors, many adoptions were arranged by doctors, lawyers, but I think a lot of it was a matter of people almost networking. The initial adoption legislation in the 1920s had addressed rights of inheritance and the legal responsibility of parents. Just who would run the process hadn't been an issue. But in the 1950s, it became clear the old laissez-faire arrangements weren't good enough. There'd been this famous case, the Mace Murray case. Joan Murray surrendered her child for adoption and the child was placed. She, I think, said originally that it hadn't been explained to her that she had the right to revoke. Under the Child Welfare Act, the mother could revoke her consent up until the time that the order of adoption was made. And she came back within quite a short time, I think, and the adopting parents refused to give up the child. And what they did eventually was that they took themselves 
out of the state. They went to live in Canberra, so putting themselves outside the jurisdiction of the court in New South Wales. And so it went through the New South Wales court, eventually to the High Court, and the two sides were sort of funded by opposing newspapers. Sunday, 21st of September, 1953. Decision today in Baby Case, Sydney. Mr Justice McClellan will deliver his decision on the Mace Baby Case in the Equity Court tomorrow. Murray Baby Case Appeal Lodged, Sydney, Tuesday. Mr P.N. Roach, solicitor for Miss Joan Murray, today filed notice of appeal in the Mace Baby Case verdict expected today, Sydney, Tuesday. The full state Supreme Court will deliver its judgment on the Mace Murray Baby Case tomorrow. In the end, the child remained with the adopting parents. It was seen then that that legislation was inadequate and then the need for specific legislation became clear. New legislation designed by the Commonwealth in the early 60s and taken up more or less uniformly by the states later in the decade stipulated that the consenting birth mother had 30 days in which she could change her mind. In addition, it tightened up the secrecy provisions, explicitly forbidding any information about the future identity of the child to pass to the birth parents. Conversely, it forbade any information about the child's origins to be available to the adoptive parents and to the child itself in later life. In its early decades, there was no sense that an adoption had to be a secret matter in order to be a successful matter. That the birth family and the adoptive family may well be known to each other, may well be part of the same community. But as the 20th century progressed, with the progressive nuclearisation of the family and and the narrowing of its base and the narrowing of the, the conception of the household and the home to what we're now familiar with, This seemed to bring with it an imperative for secrecy that simply didn't exist in the earlier period. I didn't find out I was adopted until just before I was 22 and I was about to be married and my fiancé, his mum and my mum went to school together. So he grew up always knowing I was adopted whereas I didn't. Well, I don't actually remember any one conversation when it was actually said to me. But I think once it was told and very little was actually mentioned, it then became a bit of a taboo subject. Adopted people of my generation sensed very strongly that it was a taboo subject to talk about your feelings about being adopted, that um, you didn't want to upset anyone, especially your adoptive family and that really you were left to to live with it on your own. The new laws of the 1960s also outlawed private adoption. They gave social workers the job of regulating approved agencies. But social work was changing from a craft profession, learnt on the job from the previous generation. The assessment of parents, of adoptive parents, was done by district officers most of whom had in-service training. The report was sent into the adoptions branch where it was initially reviewed by a Grade 3 clerk who made a recommendation to the Grade 6 clerk who approved the application. So it was a clerical operation. 
One of the social workers that I interviewed who'd worked in the early 1960s in Brisbane talked about the reluctance of the public servants to give ground to the sort of emerging social work profession in the area of adoption. One of his seniors said to him, uh, we're really sick of university people, university students coming in here and telling us how to do our job. There's a sort of self-interest on the part of social workers here because, as we know from the research, establishing control over adoption was one of the means by which social workers were also establishing themselves as a profession. This was not the only area, but one of the areas where they were establishing their own authority and credentials as the managers of human relations. And there's a lot of resistance to this process as well. Resistance from where? Resistance from adoptive parents, resistance from, you know, legislators. For example, social workers are calling for reformed adoption laws, which will almost always the call is for laws, which will increase the regulatory authority either of state agencies or of state agencies as they oversee private agencies. There's a lot of resistance saying finding a child and loving a child is is a fairly easy process. People have babies all the time. The social work response to that is we've got to protect the children. We've got to protect the parents. This is a complicated process. We owe the children and the parents the best we can have. Question there about which parents they're talking about, you know, who are being the most protected. I think often in this period it's the adoptive parents who are getting more of the protection than the birth parents are for sure. In progressive circles, there was a strong environmentalist position on the nature-nurture debate. And the child's environment was what mattered. And there was a view that people who wished to adopt had the capacity to form a strong attachment, perhaps as strong as a biological parent. Part of the progressivism, if you like, of that era was the minimising of biological influences on the instinct to parent and as in this was something we learned rather than we knew and a view that nurture was stronger than nature. The general attitude was that here were these good people coming forward to present themselves and who was to question Now, this was in a situation where we were aware of hospital nurseries full of babies awaiting placement. So some of those people would receive a baby within three months of their making an application. We were placing between two and 300 babies a year, assessing parents, seeing birth mothers, taking consents, placing babies. It was very, very busy, demanding work. Yeah, When you were making decisions about which family might have a child, I mean, were there times when there would be a lot of families who were... Yes, I mean, there might be a number of... Especially as the assessment process became more sophisticated, yes, there would have been a number of families that you might consider for a particular child. So how did you make the decision? Um, From the the best... decision you could make by looking through a group of people and hoping for the best. I mean, it can't be more precise than that once you've done the assessment and you've come to the conclusion that these people have the potential to be successful adopting parents. I think even sometimes if if the uh, birth mother was known to be musical or something, we might have tried to, you know, it was very inexact, but... 
Yes, yes. So uh, you just did your best. But as I say, it was an awesome responsibility. Mm. I feel I've overdosed on responsibility in my life. <laughs> Sometimes wished I worked in a florist shop. <laughs> Or a chemist where everything was exact and measurable because yes. we were such, you know, often in an unknown world. Mm. In relation to the research on adoption, by the end of the 1970s, there is a growing body of literature, mainly from the United States, where there are large sample sizes and looking at the, for example, the likelihood that adopted children compared with non-adopted children might present to child and adolescent mental health services. It was unclear whether it was um, a function of being adopted that they may be overrepresented in child and adolescent mental health services or the fact that their adoptive parents were willing to use such services. There wasn't research clearly comparing groups of children who were raised by their single parents with those placed for adoption. The comparison was more children who were raised in residential care or children's homes, children in foster care, compared with adoption. Dorothy Scott is the director of the National Centre for Child Protection in Adelaide. Research into the effects of adoption confirmed it as a better option than life in a home. Large numbers of children were brought into state care in the 1960s. Children sometimes came into care because their parents were evicted. The supporting benefits we now take for granted did not exist. Deserted wives sometimes were not eligible for state support. So large numbers of children came into care as a result of poverty. Many of those children grew up in children's homes and in foster families, and they are now often referred to as the forgotten Australians. In 1970, the case for adoption seemed unassailable. Lawmakers, psychologists, child welfare authorities, adoptive parents and churches all supported it. In 1971, 8,500 children were adopted in Australia. In 1972, almost 10,000. But three years later, the figure dropped by half, and it continued to fall. And adoption didn't just change in numerical terms. The whole manner of it altered over the decade to come, involving almost everyone who had previously participated. Some of the changes happened at the stroke of a politician's pen. Others were the result of concerted campaigning. What they had in common was a willingness to speak out and be heard. We'll hear what they said and where it led in the next program. I was at a women's health conference and somebody in the room stood up and said, I lost my child through adoption. I couldn't hear anymore. I thought, I'm going to go over and say hello to that woman. That's how I got involved and it was a support group. One of the things that certainly made me start to question was the stories coming from the surrendering mothers. We marched an International Women's Day. Did you have a banner? Yeah, a huge banner, Mothers for Contact and Adoption. And it was a way for people to express. There were public meetings held and those meetings were often filled with a great deal of hostility. 
we're raising someone else's children and I think that's enormous sense of responsibility actually that isn't always recognised. It seems like an intimate and personal act, but in fact it has massive public significance. There are also really difficult to deal with ethical questions about whose interests are being served, who we prioritize. The probably most radical analysis of this comes from a U.S. feminist historian named Ricky Solinger, who argues that all adoption is the transfer of children from the less privileged to the more privileged, and is therefore highly ethically questionable. 